Parsons then printed a series of openly hostile columns aimed squarely at the actor, in which she hinted at her long-standing suspicions of his homosexuality, overlaid with what she considered his extremely unfair treatment of Brooks. In retaliation, Grant did something most actors would have been afraid to do, or were specifically barred from doing by studio contract. He sued Parsons for slander, ending, at least for the moment, her constant and increasingly unbridled personal attacks on him. The case was eventually settled out of court, the terms of which are unknown. Gunga Din opened February 17, 1939, and was a box office winner from day one. It would go on to become the highest-grossing film that RKO had yet released. The heart of its appeal was later described by Pauline Kael, who called it one of the most enjoyable nonsense adventure movies of all time. Even with a severely curtailed foreign market due to the outbreak of war, the film managed to gross an astounding $3.8 million, twice its total production cost. It outgrossed all the other major Hollywood films released in 1939 except one a year that many critics and film historians judged to be the greatest single year in the history of the movies. Among the films released in 1939 include Victor Fleming's 1-2 combination Gone with the Wind and The Wizard of Oz, Ernst Lubitsch's Nanotchka, Sam Wood's British-made Goodbye, Mr. Chips, Frank Capra's Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Edmund Goulding's Dark Victory, Leo McCarry's Love Affair, Lewis Milestone's version of John Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men, John Ford's Stagecoach, and William Wyler's Wuthering Heights. The only film that made more money that year was Henry King's Jesse James, starring Henry Fonda in the title role and co-starring Randolph Scott as U.S. Marshal Will Wright. These are box office comparisons for the year 1939 alone. Gunga Din opened in February, while Gone with the Wind opened in December. Eventually, Gone with the Wind would outgross Gunga Din. Not long afterward, Grant began filming Hawks' Only Angels Have Wings, in which he was paired with Jean Arthur, coming off her highly praised performance in Frank Capra's Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Grant would have much preferred to star in Hitchcock's second American film, Foreign Correspondent, an independent feature made for producer Walter Wanger. Hitchcock had wanted Grant to be in the film as well, but couldn't get Cohn to postpone production of Only Angels Have Wings. Hitchcock had signed a seven-year multiple film deal with Selznick. Upon completing Rebecca, the director was eager to stay in America, fearful of the worsening war situation back home. To keep him happy and occupied, Selznick agreed to a one-picture loan-out to Wanger, which would allow Selznick to continue to put all his energies into Rebecca and, more important to him, Gone with the Wind. In addition, Selznick was strapped for cash due to heavy gambling debts. Having Wanger make a picture with Hitchcock, in which Selznick would own a piece but have to put up no money, was the kind of deal he couldn't turn down. The lead and foreign correspondent eventually went to Joel McRae, after Hitchcock tried unsuccessfully to get Cary Grant, then Clark Gable, and Gary Cooper. Years later, Hitchcock said this about the casting of foreign correspondent. I would have liked to have had bigger names. I always ended up with the next best, in this instance with Joel McRae. 
In Angels, Grant played a Lindbergh-like character combined with a real-life flyer whom Hawks had known, who had once parachuted from a burning plane and whose co-pilot died in the ensuing crash, after which his fellow flyers shunned him for the rest of his life. Hawks set his film in the Andes and made his heroes daredevil flyers who delivered freight cargo. Jeff Carter, Grant, the operator of one such high-danger operation, gets caught off-guard in the middle of his romance with showgirl Bonnie Lee, Jean Arthur, by the surprise reappearance of his ex-wife, Judy, Rita Hayworth, in the role that made her a star, married now to Bat McPherson, Richard Barthelmess. Once more, Grant's personal dictum of not chasing women became an integral part of his character, as he and Hawks transformed Carter's stoicism into a metaphor for the very type of reserved, non-swaggering, macho heroism that young American servicemen would need after America's coming entry into World War II. So much so that the film's signature line of dialogue, Where's Joe?, would serve as a catchphrase for the wives and mothers of a generation of wartime G.I. Joes. As Peter Bogdanovich rightly points out, this picture transformed Grant from light comedy into the front ranks of Hollywood leading He-Men, the first successful action film in which he got the girl, or rather, the girl got him. The film finished shooting on April 29, 1939, and was rush-released into theaters by Cohn, in need of fresh box office income, barely two weeks later. It became another hit for Grant, and helped confirm his reputation as a star who could open big. The picture debuted in New York's Radio City Music Hall the same week the World's Fair opened, and still managed a whopping $143,000 in its first ten days. Finally, Only Angels Have Wings is a film notable for its place in pop culture as the one that gave Impressionists the world over their famous multisyllabic progressively louder G-U-D, 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 that stands to this day as the mandatory Cary Grant impersonation. Forever after, Grant good-naturedly pointed out to the end of his days that he never actually said G-U-D, G-U-D, G-U-D. Grant recorded a promo for the Lux Radio Theater version of Only Angels Have Wings in which he actually did say G-U-D, G-U-D, G-U-D. Nevertheless, years later, Grant told Variety that, I've looked at all my films and soundtracks and never said it. I never even worked with Judy Garland. I think it began with comic Larry Storch's imitation, and everyone else copied it, like You Dirty Rat imitations of Cagney. Taking barely a moment to breathe, Grant now shuttled back to RKO to begin in name only, a film originally planned as his fourth pairing with Katherine Hepburn. But Hepburn had since severed her ties with the studio and moved to New York to appear on Broadway in the Philadelphia story. The role went instead to Carol Lombard, who had appeared once before with Grant in Sinners in the Sun in 1932, before both became big stars. Lombard was now at the peak of her popularity, coming off a string of hit movies that had elevated her to the highest ranks of stardom and also exhausted her. She was not all that anxious to make a name only, having just married Clark Gable, with whom she had vowed to spend as much time as possible. 
She finally agreed to do the picture after Pandro Berman built it into a four-picture deal at the then-astonishing fee of $150,000 per picture, plus profit percentages and top billing in the film's credit and advertising. When Grant heard about this, he angrily vowed not to appear in the movie. Berman, through Frank Vincent, then agreed to raise Grant's base fee to $100,000, but refused to give away any more percentages and could not get Lombard to budge on her top billing. After much waffling, Grant, at Vincent's urging, reluctantly agreed to go ahead with the film. In Name Only was directed by John Cromwell, coming off his hit movie Made for Each Other, which he had made earlier that year for Selznick International Pictures, with Lombard and James Stewart in the starring roles. Cromwell was a veteran utility director with a dozen pictures under his belt, the highlight of which was Of Human Bondage, 1934, with Betty Davis. Lombard liked Cromwell, and to accommodate her, Berman hired him to direct in name only, the type of melodrama known in its day as a woman's picture. A three-star vehicle for the story of a romantic triangle, Lombard, Grant, and Kay Francis, the film surprised and disappointed audiences, expecting something a little less heavy from Grant and Lombard, who had, between them, made some of the fastest and funniest movies of the 1930s. Nonetheless, the film proved enough of a commercial hit to satisfy RKO. As for Grant, he remained totally indifferent to all aspects of the project, except its hefty paycheck. That fall, England formally entered the war and Grant moved once more to obtain U.S. citizenship. Having immersed himself in making three...